Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A note of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, bringing you high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm Owen Michael. With me today is Emmy Award-winning journalist and television host Anna Garcia. Welcome, Anna. Well, thank you, Owen. It's great to be here. It's nice to see you. What, uh, what have you been up to lately? All sorts of fun things. Um, Yeah, I just sold a crime concept to a Canadian production company that I'm pretty excited about. But of course, I cannot talk about the details of such deal. But the um, way the business goes, it is. The well, way the crime business goes. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, people uh, can find you in various ways on digital and TV and all sorts of stuff. And we'll have some contact information towards the end of the show for that. Uh, at Anna G News. At Anna G News. Boom. Anna with one N. There you go. And it's Anna with one N. This is a, this is Very crucial. important. A, a common misconception. Uh, we're joined uh, on the phone by Johnny Dwyer, a writer, reporter, and teacher author of the books American Warlord and his latest book, The Districts, Stories of American Justice from the Federal Courts. Welcome, Johnny Dwyer. Thanks for having me. Uh, You're joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Is that right? Yes, yes, from cold, cold Brooklyn. Is it snowing? Um, It was snowing when I was driving home, um, but it's not sticking, thank God. Do you have a car in Brooklyn? (laughs) (laughs) We are breaking some news here. There are car owners in Brooklyn. I do. He's exposing himself. I love it. Uh, So anti-Brooklyn. A a source of much, much stress in my life. We got got two or three days of rain this week, and uh, it's basically locked up the city for the winter conditions (laughs) here ahead of winter. So uh, we we sympathize with with the weather over there. Um, We're going to chat about uh, your books and what you're working on, et cetera, at the the end of this episode. We're going to jump right into some stories. First of all, for our cases this week, we've got uh, a Chicago woman charged after allegedly shooting a 14-year-old girl after the girl allegedly robbed her with a BB gun on the street. A South Carolina man is sentenced to prison this week for killing his mother's boyfriend, dismembering him, and hiding the body parts underneath her house. But first, a woman's live-in boyfriend shoots her kids dead after an argument about smoking in the house, the same house where there was an earlier tragedy years ago. So this is uh, about Paul Ferguson, a fellow uh, in Connecticut, who was living with his girlfriend. He had just moved in. They had been in a long-term relationship, but he had just moved in with her and her kids. Exactly. This is uh, Paul Ferguson. He's uh, 42 years old. Um, He moved in with a woman named Danielle Jett, and she has uh, two kids, uh, Della Jett, 15 years old, and Sterling Jett Jr., 16. I believe it's Jetty. Jetty, okay. Jetty. Thank you. You're welcome. There's an E on the end there. Uh, this happened 9.45 p.m. this Tuesday this week. This is uh, Watertown, Connecticut, about an hour north of New Haven, kind of in the neck of the woods over there in the northeast near Johnny. Uh, Danielle Jetty, the uh, teen's mother, told police that uh, her daughter was mad about Paul Ferguson smoking cigarettes in the house. Uh, Danielle and Paul had been in a relationship for about two years, as you alluded. She, uh, police said that she, excuse me, that Paul had just moved into the house about two weeks ago. Danielle told police her 15-year-old daughter, Della, had just returned from a field trip and was talking about Ferguson's smoking in the house. WTIC-TV reports that Paul Ferguson was downstairs in the basement. He was watching TV with the 16-year-old teen. Fairly domestic situation here. Um, Ferguson heard the mom and the daughter upstairs arguing, came upstairs, and basically kind of reprimanded the teen daughter and said, uh, don't talk to your mom that way, and, you know, uh, calm down, quiet down. 
uh, an argument ensued. They kind of got loud. Sterling Jr., the 16-year-old uh, brother, came upstairs. He tried to intercede. That's when police say uh, Ferguson went to the master bedroom and got a Glock pistol from a gun safe. He shot Sterling Jr., the 16-year-old, in the leg. That's when mom said uh, she ran and got the phone. When, and yeah, she said she had to go downstairs, she to told the police, to look for a phone to call 911. Exactly. And this is when I think it gets a little fuzzy for me as an investigative crime reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, then she says she heard a gunshot. Presumably that would have been when he shot the daughter. Police found uh, the daughter later. Uh, she had been shot in the chest in, on the back deck of the house. Right. But according to her, he wasn't quite done because then he went, supposedly, and shot the teen son again, this time killing him. In the chest, exactly. So now you've got both teenagers shot in the chest, and then he's not done yet, according to her. Right. Then uh, Ferguson reportedly went back into the master bedroom and he shot himself in the head, according to police. Uh, both teens, uh, the mom apparently tried to do CPR on the daughter. The, the son was already wounded. Um, the teens were hospitalized, but they were pronounced dead there. Um, so already we've got sort of a domestic violence type of thing. Um, Paul, uh, excuse me, Johnny, you, your stuff has covered a little bit more of the, uh, the federal situation in this latest book, but you're still dealing with the justice system. I'm sure you've uh, seen or read about uh, plenty of these cases. Yeah, I mean, this is like a breathtaking tragedy. Um, I actually spoke with the Watertown PD this afternoon just to try and get a sense whether the story had moved forward. Uh And the big question mark for me was this gun. Um, You know, the perpetrator, uh, he's a felon. He shouldn't be in possession of a weapon. Right. Um, And, you know, Watertown's just 35 minutes up the road from Newtown. Uh, where the Sandy Hook tragedy occurred right. in, in mm-hmm. 2012, um, you know, and it would seem that uh, that there's a sort of connection there, just in terms of the fact that this gun was present in the house. Uh, there were other weapons present in the house, um, and if anything, we've learned about guns in general is that the mere presence of them increases the likelihood of indeed of a murder or a suicide. And this house um, has seen four deaths, two suicides and two homicides. Um, and it's, you know, that's a statistical blip within uh, Connecticut, but it's really significant. Um, you know, in terms of how we understand this sort of violence. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here um, that, seems like there should have been warning signs uh, throughout, throughout here. So for a little bit background there, Paul Ferguson was a convicted felon. He was uh, not legally permitted to have access to a gun, as you said. He was previously convicted of uh, unlawful restraint charges. He had uh, been arrested on a sexual assault charge in 2007. He was also convicted in a 2014 theft case. He'd been sentenced to 18 months in prison, according to the Hartford Courant newspaper. Uh, The police said that there were other guns locked in the house in a safe. Um, Police did say, though, that uh, Ferguson retrieved this Glock that she didn't know about from a safe. It's unclear if there was more than one safe. Uh, Johnny, did you get any indication from your phone call today uh, on any of those details? No, they they basically said the two things I asked her was the gun. Um, that's under investigation as to who it belonged to, how it was obtained. And mm-hmm. then I asked about drugs and alcohol. You know, a lot of times these situations are are aggravated by sure. um, someone using either, and you know they're doing an autopsy and they're just not commenting on that at this point. Yeah, um, it's still fresh. It's uh, this was Tuesday night essentially. And, and the background is that back in October of 2016, the children's father committed suicide in that house. So you have mm-hmm. a very long history of tragedy. In that house, this poor woman is, uh, you know, she lost uh, her, uh, she her lost whole her, family, her, her, her husband two years ago, or excuse me, uh, in 2016. Uh, now the boyfriend and the two kids, which is uh, unbelievably tragic. You can't even imagine um, the sibling's father had killed himself in the same house with a self-inflicted gunshot wound after uh, a minor domestic, uh, do, uh, excuse me, a minor domestic dispute, as police uh, described it. Um that's a really unfortunate series of events, and I wonder, you know, we have 
very strong opinions on gun control and gun ownership and gun access and all that kind of thing. Uh, people have strong opinions on this one way or the other. Uh, several guns in the house after you've had a significant incident like this. Where you had your husband kill himself with a gun. You, you may not want to have guns in the house given that kind of history. I, I don't know. There's a lot about this case. It, it's a horrible tragedy and it's overwhelming the, the human loss here and these two teenagers who were so regarded and loved by yeah. their friends and the community is mourning. But I got to tell you, there, there's just – I, I want to know more. I, I really do want to know more. Um, y- you know this crime scene, even if it ends up being one of these murder-suicide cases – uh, there's got to be a lot more information ab- about where everyone was. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's only, sadly, one person who has survived, and she's so traumatized to tell us what went down in that house. Indeed. Um, and I don't know what the statistics are offhand, but once uh, gun violence has occurred in a household, whether that increases things or decreases uh, the chances of something happening in the future. Johnny, as you alluded, just the fact of having a gun in the house increases exponentially the the, the chance. Obviously, if there's no gun there, nobody's going to shoot anybody. If you have a gun in the house, the increases chances that something it's going to be used. And um, this particular series of events, I mean, that's just a tragic coincidence. And, you know, coincidences are an awful thing to have uh, in a tragedy like this. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, part of the uh, the marketing of weapons in our society is that they're useful for protecting ourselves, you know, whether it's from a home invasion threat or, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's from uh, the government being an uh, overpowering uh, a presence in our society. Um, but there's a Supreme Court ruling recently in November that is actually going to uh, – force Remington arms to, to address their marketing of the Bushmaster rifle. Um, this would be the AR-15. Exactly. And this was the weapon that was used, uh, in Sandy Hook or one of the weapons that was used. Um, and I mean, just, you know, what we think about the second amendment, it just shows that the conversation is shifting slightly as to how, we well regulate these weapons. Um, and I think if we understand just the raw numbers of, you know, a gun plus people plus anger equals these outcomes, mm-hmm. then, you know, we as, as parents, if we can step away from the situation, can just make a decision. What's the cost benefit of having a weapon in the house? Um, and I feel like, you know, in situations like this, and I've covered a lot of breaking news crime, mm-hmm. you really want to come away with some sort of meaning from it. Um, and, that can you be know, frustrating. I only hope, yeah, I mean, it's extremely frustrating. And I, it seems like the community is now trying to raise money to, to honor these kids with an appropriate service. And they're having a vigil tomorrow night. Um, but I think there's, there's an urge to do more and to sort of change uh, the sort of structural situation that leads to these incidents. Whenever we cover, and we cover this stuff a lot, um, we inevitably have lots of people with very strong opinions on both sides of the issue, but especially there, yeah. we'll have a lot of commenters talking about uh, uh, these issues, um, that it's not necessarily the gun's fault or that it's not, uh, you know, that if you hadn't been there or whatever. The details are still coming out on this, so we will, of course, keep you updated on yeah. TrueCrimeDaily.com as we have it. But um, yeah, this is—I uh, can't believe that the, the, all this stuff happened to this poor in this in this house to this family. The whole thing—it's—it's um, it's tragic. We'll have more as we know it. Uh, moving on to our a South Carolina story that we have. This is uh, Charles Bridges in South Carolina. It's a 20-year-old kid, uh, 20-year-old man, I should say. He's uh, He pleaded guilty to murder on Tuesday just before his trial began this week. Um, this is, uh, he was accused of killing his mother's boyfriend, a man named Gary Stone, who's 51 years old. His mother's name is uh, Dawn Wilkins. She's 45 years old now. Uh, this is occurring in the area of Gaffney, South Carolina, about 50 miles southwest of Charlotte, North Carolina. So this is kind of northern South Carolina. 
Charlotte Observer newspaper reports that on November 3rd, 2017, Cherokee County Sheriff's deputies responded to a report of a domestic incident at a mobile home where Dawn Wilkins lived with her boyfriend, Gary Stone. They were reportedly living together in a common-law marriage relationship. Uh, Stone told deputies that uh, he and the son, his name is Charles Bridges, they had an argument, but the son had walked away to cool off and was not present when deputies were there. They left. Authorities say Charles Bridges, uh, who was 18 at the time, he returned after deputies left, and he killed him. Sheriff said uh, Bridges choked the victim out and later stabbed the victim. Police say Bridges' mother, Dawn Wilkins, Wilkins, excuse me, then uh, helped Bridges cut up Stone's body with several weapons, according to police, uh, according to the sheriff, uh, sheriff, Cherokee County Sheriff's Office, excuse me. They then put the body parts in different containers, which they stowed underneath the mobile home. That's very graphic. Um, deputies investigating the disturbance found, uh, excuse me, Stone's disappearance found his remains at the residence about two weeks after the murder. Uh, WYFF-TV reports authorities got a tip from someone who believed a murder took place at the residence, and uh, they said they gave specific details. Uh, Charles Bridges was sentenced to 35 years in prison this week. Dawn Wilkins herself, the mother, has a criminal record with charges including uh, burglary, fraud, assault and battery, criminal sexual conduct with a minor, among others. She's already pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact. Desecration of body, conspiracy to kidnap. Before her son's trial, she's incarcerated while she awaits her sentencing. Um, another one of those domestic uh, violence issues, this one in particular, you know, this is an 18-year-old kid. Uh, it seems that there was some, uh, not to speculate too much into it, but uh, was protective of his mother. He felt that heat of, that of his mother was being mistreated and she, need, she needed some kind of protection. It sounds like she stood up for her. And in that moment, I don't know the, whether his intention was to kill her boyfriend, uh, like you said, he first choked him, and then he stabbed him. She was never charged with murder. Right. Uh, she did not kill him, but she certainly helped her son cut up the boyfriend and put him under the yeah, trailer. I, I, so I'm sure we've all – all three of us have sort of addressed or uh, covered stories like this where, you know, it makes sense to somebody at the time to dismember this person – but then to stow the evidence under your, whether that's a crime of opportunity, whether, you know, they were sure somebody was going to come looking for him right off the bat. It seems, I, I, you know, it was a, it's a wooded kind of a rural area. It seems like maybe it would have been better to bury you know, put, him, put the, you know, the body out in the, out in the woods or something. Of course, that's, um, you know, I don't recommend anybody does that whatsoever. But um, the fact that uh, someone called, police and or called the sheriff's office and gave specific details that also leads me to believe that maybe somebody talked somebody talked about it uh, mm -hmm. you know I, I saw i don't have a picture of it offhand but it's a mobile home and it's kind of on a hill and it's in a wooded area you're not sure it looks a little bit remote um so you know there's another one of those things where people talk mm -hmm. even, even in bad situations like that and also i believe that the victim he had been missing for some time so he was also reported right. missing because right. i think the cops had been there first time they they not the first time for the altercation, but the first time they went, like, looking for him. When they came back, they had the search warrant, and that is why they were able to use the evidence, and it was obtained quite legally with a search warrant. Uh, I think the sheriff also made some comments to the media about how evil this whole thing was and how disturbing it was to his deputies to have to go through the containers and the body parts, which is interesting you know, we are, of course, talking about uh, a man's life here, but there's that um, – and this is the kind of thing that crime reporters always get into when you start to get to know the law enforcement people a little bit better and, and you have that relationship, which kind of brings us back to Johnny and, and his entree into the federal courts. Is you, you start to get to know the people who work these cases and it does affect them. Mm -hmm. There is – it is a horrible thing for someone to see that. And uh, you presumably get into law enforcement because you want to protect people. You never want this to be the ending, the loss of life. And it's also – it feels like such a disregard for life. You could say, well, killing someone is certainly a disregard for life. But then it's what you do with them afterwards that just continues um, this disgusting, revolting, violent action. There's the here, the moment situation here. But then, uh, you know – you're choking somebody out here, according to the sheriff, and now this man is incapacitated because he's ostensibly unconscious. So you don't have to kill him. You don't have to kill him at this point. 
you know, we're not there, obviously, but that uh, speaks to some anger. And then there's also, you know, is there anything more? I mean, there's plenty of awful things, but it's horrifying to think of actually physically dismembering a person uh, uh, like a human body that takes, you know, it's a new level, which is very interesting. Like, how do you go from, let's say he chokes him out and it's an accident. Okay, you still have a moment. You take a beat. You don't have to kill the guy. Now you kill the guy, which somehow, and, and this is the amazing thing, is that criminals, I always would say to people, especially like during divorces, you know, where, where ultimately like the husband or the wife either kills or gets a contract for the other person, and, and all because they didn't want the shame of divorce. For the life of me, I do not understand that logic. Like, why is it easier just to kill the person? Whoever thinks this? Well, and it's one yeah. of the most common situations, too. Right? Always. Always. I, Johnny, you must have seen that even in, in federal court. You're like, and this was your response to the problem was to make it so much worse by committing a crime? Yeah, the logic kind of collapses. I mean, I you know, I think the interesting thing is that that moment when the victim dies in a murder, the power kind of shifts where all of a sudden the body takes on this power over the perpetrator. They have mm -hmm. to do something with it. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, you know, Edgar Allan Poe wrote about this in Telltale Heart, but mm -hmm. it's like, you know, what do we do with this body? And I write a little bit um, in my book about these two, <laughs> two mobsters trying to deal with the body and it became a decades long uh, struggle for them. And, you know, of course it ended with the FBI finding enough of the body to make a case um, but this notion that, you know, in one minute you can have control over someone's life or death, the next moment, they're literally a liability for you. And mm -hmm. they're the greatest threat to your liberty. Um, it's, it's a really interesting, interesting thing. This case, obviously, horrific and sad. I mean, from what I read, there's uh, that the mother and son both acknowledge using meth. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that would color your judgment, um, and perhaps make this really tough manual labor of dismembering a body. Yeah, you know, that's, that's certainly, that's certainly a, a common theme when you hear about, uh, meth field crimes and things like that. There's a certain amount of dissociation. Um, I, I still, it's, you know, cutting off an arm or cutting, you know, whatever, however you're doing it after you do the first one. And so I, you, I guess it's speculation. You sort of have to go in some sort of fugue state or something like you don't really think about what you're doing physically hacking somebody up like this. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of work. A human body is, is a, there's a lot of square footage there um, when you're trying to do it. So obviously I'm not a, a, a criminal or at least I'm not a criminal uh, at this level. Let's hope uh, not, Owen. You know, I speed, uh, yeah. I speed a little bit once in a while uh, on the on the roadway. But um, my first thought would not be to dispose of it this way. I mean, like like I said, I would, Johnny, you bring up a good point. You've got this uh, literally this sort of dead weight on your conscience and the physical evidence here. You want to get this away as far away from you as possible and get it. You know, that seems to me. But uh, you bring up a good point when we're talking about drugs, especially when we're talking about crystal methamphetamine. Um, we're on, you know, it's, it's, there's no shortage of stories out there of people doing some pretty bizarre actions and decisions. Not when you make your well, best you know, decisions. Yeah. And, you know, on the, the body issue, it's kind of interesting because the Irishman, um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you guys have had a chance. Oh, I love it. it. I've seen it twice. I'm obsessed with it. We will, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I, we'll have some comments about this as well. Go ahead. I, yes, we both said it. No, I, but I, I feel the same way about it. And, um, you know, the absence of Jimmy Hoffa's body is really what empowered his myth. Because, mm -hmm. yes. you know, if you, if you think if they had discovered his body, a lot of people were getting whacked at that point. Um, and you know, he was a big deal, a massive right. uh, figure in the labor movement, but his mystery made him into an Uber celebrity. Mm -hmm. and, it's almost an urban. Um, myth. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's this notion of the power of, of a body. It can take on afterlife, um, as a liability, you know, as a myth maker, I mean, disappearing a human being is, uh, a crime under the um, Geneva Convention. It's a crime against humanity um, because this notion of the body as not only something we have a sentimental attachment to, but as evidence of a crime mm -hmm. uh, is so significant. Um, 
I was a I was a bartender many 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 years ago, and I had a defense lawyer who was a, a regular customer of mine, and he always shared some stories, and he had his theory of the best way to dispose of a body, and he used to sort of hint around it all the time. He wouldn't, he you know, for legal reasons, he wouldn't say, he would not come out and say it, but uh, he basically kind of outlined it. But yeah, it's a, it's about uh, getting rid of the the identifying physical characteristics, all the rest. Um, to speak to the Irishman as well, you know the. There's some, there's some speculation that uh, he may have made this entire thing up. There's, you know, you can't trust mobsters, and mobsters are saying he made this up or he had nothing to do with this. He was an errand guy, and you know, who are you? Who are you going to believe? Was he simply? I don't want to give any spoilers away to mm-hmm. uh, anybody who saw the, who hasn't seen the the movie, but uh, this to me almost sort of adds to the to the urban myth too like do i want do i care to believe it it makes sense it's a, the shortest yeah. distance it, between two it lines. does make a lot of sense for me it was very personal because i was in a a reporter in atlantic city and angelo bruno mm-hmm. and his family which this is about this uh, is he Harvey was the character he right? was the mob boss right. in philadelphia and philadelphia mob always controlled atlantic city and new jersey was split in half you had the philly mob covered half of jersey and you had the new york mob covered Northern Jersey. And I covered a lot of mob trials. Uh, it would be the next generation of Angelo Bruno's family. Mm-hmm. And the restaurant, I have eaten at that restaurant. It is a real place. It is a real mobster place. I cannot tell you how um, connected I felt to this film because of all the organized crime that I covered in Philadelphia and New York. Uh, not Philadelphia and New York, Philadelphia and Atlantic City. And uh, one of my favorite stories, I've just got to tell you this story because I covered so many mob trials is, so there's this one street in Atlantic City, and this is where Nicky Scarfo, that was, he was the leader of the Atlantic City mob. Um, he had his residence there. It was the safest street in Atlantic City. It also had a restaurant, but I'm telling you, it was the safest place ever. And I used to love to eat there because it was so safe as a woman. <laughs> okay, so it's his trial. He gets convicted, and I'm in one of those big news vans that you can't stand, right? And I go out to tape whatever it is I'm going to tape, and I come back to the news van. And in the windshield is this note. And it is written, back then you'd buy the whole carton of cigarettes, right? Mm -hmm. You'd buy a whole carton. This person had ripped the carton and taken one of the long sides of it and written the note on the back of this carton. And And he left it for me and he said... Little Nicky didn't get a fare, but he wrote trail instead of trial. Mm. Not, a, not a good <laughs> speller. Okay. But it's all right. It's television. And I'll never forget that. It was such a message that was so direct to the reporter on the story. That's a message good thing. sent and received, and then I, I I had to report on it. Well, you you know you you uh, seek out uh, relationships as a reporter, uh, you know, yep. and lots of different things. But uh, yeah, you, do, you sometimes your sources are unsavory characters, but they're still uh, giving you good information. And if you've got that relationship, you know, there's still people. Oh, totally. I've, I think one of the craziest stories I ever did was on a mob hitman who was um, in hiding. And he was a hitman, a little Nicky, um, um, Nicky Crow was his name, Nick, Nicholas Caramondi was his name. Little Nicky Crow is what they called him. And, um, yeah, I remember interviewing him in hiding, and I was so perplexed because he was so charming. It was like watching The Irishman or any of those mob movies, Goodfellas. He was funny and charming and well-spoken and... Um, he said something to me that has stayed with me my whole life when I said to him, well, you know, I'm, I'm perplexed here because, you know, I like talking with you, but you've killed all these people and you're, you're I can't. You're a psychopath. Right. And yeah. I can't like separate this. And I said, I don't understand how you could do all this. And he said to me, it wasn't me. It was the wall around me. I have never forgotten that. And I always think about that because I'm torn. I think good people do bad things and I think bad people do good things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I I don't know Johnny if you find that as a reporter, yeah you've covered uh, a, a significant uh, section of mafia related stories Johnny haven't you? Yeah I mean that's a that's a section of the book is uh, it's about one uh, trial in particular but also just about how we've developed our prosecutorial culture around uh, organized crime which mm-hmm. was you know that was the most elite. Um, 
unit within the U.S. Attorney's offices here for years. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of this disassociation with violence, yeah, like, I think I think a, a larger sort of moral order takes over when you're involved either in an organized crime family or in a political regime that operates like one, which is very much what happened in my first book, um, where, you know, there's the work of being an associate or the work of, uh, you know, being part of a death squad. You're kind of a soldier. And, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're you know, taking you, the top down orders. And that's, you know, that's all the justification you need because on the other side of it, you'll get killed if you don't, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, in for a so, pound, for a pound, as they say. Exactly. Uh, yes. Well, so the irony is not lost on us that we're talking about rural South Carolina here and comparing it to uh, major organized crime uh, metropolitan hits. Uh, evil is evil. And, you know, yep. killing is killing. And this is, you know, it's one of the oldest stories in, in the book, of course, in the literal book. Um, let's talk about Araceli Diaz in uh, Chicago. This is a woman who was robbed at BB gunpoint and uh, she uh, basically turned the situation around and shot her assailant. This is uh, Araceli Diaz, 21 years old. She reportedly made an arrangement on Facebook to sell a Siberian husky dog in Chicago last week. Uh, Diaz apparently sells, uh, she breeds, she's a breeder. She's breeds uh, huskies and so side business or because she does a full-time job as another thing as her attorney says. We'll get into that as a second here. She met two teen girls Friday on the southwest side around 6 p.m. to sell this dog. They agreed to meet on Facebook. Exactly. That's how the how, the introduction was made. How many people um, do things these days. Yeah, you uh, sell a lot of stuff on Facebook. Exactly. Um, she met these two teen girls uh, on the southwest side around 6 p.m., Chicago Sun-Times newspaper reports that Diaz wanted uh, $800 for the dog. So this is a a substantial transaction. You know, you're mm-hmm. carrying around a lot of, that's a serious cash. Um, I'm sure, you know, you're meeting strangers and I'm sure there's all sorts of people have opinions on how they want to do that and meet in a public place and et cetera and so forth. Uh, so was, it's not weird that they would meet in a park? Uh from the description that I could see, this looked like this was just a street corner and it oh. was probably near one of these people's houses. It's not near her house because okay. she was about nine miles away. I don't, it's unclear why she was in this neighborhood itself, but this was, it's, it's a very residential area and I didn't see, I did a kind of a Google street view and I kind of mm-hmm. ran around the neighborhood there and I didn't see any, any particular thing. So they must've agreed that like, this is the uh, address to meet at. It's unclear. I shouldn't speculate too much. Um, one of the girls, a 14-year-old, reportedly pulled out a BB gun and attempted to rob Diaz. The circumstances are unclear, but it appears the other girl took off with the dog. Uh, the 14-year-old pulled out an unknown metal object. Uh, police later found it was uh, found a broken BB gun at the scene. That's what they ascribed the, uh, the weapon to be. She told Diaz to get on the ground, and then she allegedly struck her twice in the head and in the face. Police say that's when uh, Araceli Diaz pulled out her own Glock 9mm pistol and shot the 14-year-old in the chest and the abdomen and then drove away. The teen was hospitalized in critical condition, was later arrested and charged with a felony count of attempted robbery with a far- firearm. She's, been tri- she's uh, due to be in uh, juvenile court next week. It's a, it's a, I suppose it's a good thing a 9mm Glock at close range is not messing around hitting in the chest and in the abdomen could have easily killed this uh, this young lady. So uh, Yeah, and the way they happened. found uh, the, the, the lady selling the, the dog, right, the lady who's the dog breeder, so she got into her caddy and she drove off, and with the help of surveillance cameras, mm-hmm. they were able to figure out who she was, mm-hmm. and police say that when they got to the house, the car was there in the driveway, and the Glock was just on the seat of the passenger's car, uh, passenger seat. And it was loaded with eight rounds, um, which I, I don't know what city, you know, but especially in Chicago, you, you may or may not have heard some of the stories over the last several years about uh, gun violence in Chicago and, and sort of the, uh, what's going on, or uh, gang violence and, and, and various uh, shootings and murder. And there's a lot going on in Chicago, but uh, I wouldn't leave my gun in the passenger seat of a car, no matter what, mm-hmm. in any city. Seems like a bad form, bad gun ownership. Uh, this woman, Arcella Diaz, she did admit, admit to the shooting. She has no prior criminal record. She was arrested uh, that night. She has a firearm owner 
excuse me, a firearm owner's identification card issued by Illinois State Police. That's, uh, you know, basically your, your gun license. But she was not issued a concealed carry license, which would which is what she was doing here. Right. Is essentially, uh, you're not supposed to be carrying this. So around. they didn't get her for shooting the 14-year-old. The cops charged her on a gun violation. Right. And right now, the authorities believe her version of the story that she went there to sell the dog, but she feels that it was a setup because the girl took the dog and not only wouldn't give the dog back, but also wouldn't give her the eight hundred dollars, and, and then and hit her in the head and, right. and assaulted her. Right. So, and you know, BB guns and pellet guns—it's been described a couple of different ways, but uh, you know, they can be very lifelike. And at five or six, at, after six in Chicago right now, it's dark. Somebody's waving around one of these things and sort of hits you with a, a thing like this. You, you know, you may well believe that you are under attack by a fatal weapon here. So sure enough, uh, shooting back. So yeah, prosecutors even agree that um, uh, this was self-defense. There was one story that I read about this, that the police didn't even want to charge her at all because this on is the gun of, violation, uh, not, not anything. Um, but it was fairly minor. She's, uh, she had a $5,000 bail and I believe she's been released since then. Um, the dog, according to her attorney, is died also. Though. The dog we is dead. I don't understand. It's unclear how that happened. Right. Whether the dog, you know, who knows? Got we run, don't know. Run, whether it got run over or whether they killed the dog or got injured in a shooting. Who knows what? But uh, that's unfortunate uh, that uh, we do have a death here and it's a dog. Nobody likes when uh, a dog dies. It's terrible. No. Husky, notwithstanding. A very vocal dog. Um so yeah, uh, it's a weird case. It's a strange case, but it's it's sort of it's almost good news in a Chicago sense. And that it, this is a shooting that did not end in death, and um, and this is a person. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of commenters. This is self defense. This is exactly what you want to have a gun for, especially in an urban environment like this, where you may be in a rough neighborhood, etc. Um, and there may be. I'm sure Johnny may have opinions on this yourself, as far as. Um, the concealed carry state to state and, and circumstances and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, Chicago itself is notorious for having pretty tight gun control uh, laws there, Illinois, I should say. But of course, you know, Wisconsin and Indiana and Missouri and surrounding yeah. states uh, much looser. And that's they basically tracked how these guns get into here, resulting in uh, kind of a, a really tight gun situation in the city. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's something oddly sweet about this story, the fact that it was over a husky mm -hmm. rather than, you know, a, a kilo of heroin. Right, uh, a cash or, or drug deal or something, right. Yeah, um, but, you know, it's interesting because Shaw has this terrible reputation for gun violence, but the numbers have actually sort of drifted downward in mm -hmm. recent years. And, like, this year uh, they're at 1,600 as of this month, whereas last year during the same period it was about 1,800 shootings. Um, it's not really much of a silver lining, but it's something. Mm -hmm. um, and I know in this community, in Little Village in particular, there's been a lot of pressure on the Chicago Police Department because they've seen an uptick locally in shootings. There was right. a 32-year-old man who was killed walking home from his job uh, earlier this month. A 7-year-old girl was shot on Halloween, um, mm -hmm. and they arrested a 15-year-old boy. But I think the, the trend in Chicago over the last decade has been uh, young shooters and innocent victims. And it's just, it's terrible. It's really terrible. It, it um, is. I, I wouldn't go ahead. I wouldn't blame, um, someone going into the city, uh, to try and protect himself with a weapon. Um, you know, I think especially if you're a licensed carrier and you're trained right. in how to use a gun, it makes sense, particularly if you can just look at the map and see, you know, you're going to a neighborhood where there's gun violence. You yeah. should be prepared for it. And Little Village, I mean, I believe this woman lives in Cicero, which is sort of... Oh, west, Cicero. West side. It's, 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 it can be rough around the edges itself. Yes. But this Little Village area is also sort of on the south side, and it's been making quite a uh, few headlines. And we should also say that, uh, you know, they attributed some of this stuff to gang violence, but it's not in the sense of like uh, L.A. with the Bloods and the Crips or the whatever. This is sort of like a scattered, decentralized, um, lots of little yeah. turf wars and little little um, young kids and things like that. That, uh, In other words, the, it, it's almost the lack of structure that's keeping, uh, you know, uh, when you have uh, when you have established tribal gangs sort of regulating the things it. it it, it almost, Johnny, maybe you can speak a little bit to this. It almost um, 
speaking of the top down orders and things like well, this. Well, yeah. I you mean, know, if you've got, if you got two powerful gangs running a thing and they've going at each other, that's different than a bunch of small little skirmishes. Everybody sort of, you know, going block to block and nobody has control, not making the case for, uh, you know, organized crime. Well, yeah, exactly. But there is something to be said for, you know, or again, we're talking about organized crime. When there's organized crime, you feel safe in a particular neighborhood or a particular restaurant or whatever because you know this is the safe zone when it comes to that. But you've got situations in Chicago where there is no safe zone because nobody's sort of in control of these different neighborhoods. Well, I, like I just don't understand that. I think, you know, for those of us not from Chicago, all we know is there's been terrible gun violence there over the last few years. And for the life of Decade, me, really. no one has been able to explain to me why and why it is so hard to make that city safer. I mean, what is it going to take? Yeah. And maybe the two of you have some insight into that for those of us. And I realize it's much – the answers are always far more sure. complicated. But yeah. but if this were happening in Manhattan, for example, or in Brooklyn – Even in L.A. In L.A., it would not – be going on for this long, right? When Bratton came in and did the CompStat, which he also did in New York, of course, you know, they got scientific about it and they went after it. Uh, but Chicago and Johnny, I'm sure you actually are better informed on this from your coverage than myself, but, you know, they're dealing with no shortage of sort of uh, city corruption and the Chicago police force has been uh, under fire for various calls that uh, that the, the higher-ups are making. Even the, the last mayor, Rahm Emanuel, and the Laquan McDonald situation, there was... Uh, exactly. So that kind of chaos, I think, doesn't really breed a lot of confidence in, in, mm-hmm. in organizing. And wait a minute, this. isn't uh, Charlie Beck there now? Isn't he the he's new the, commissioner? He's the, he's he's the, the former the, police chief of Los Angeles who right. had gone in to retirement, he's so acting, uh, acting police chief, uh, commissioner. I think. I think that's we'll what they call them. Yeah, commissioner um, is because yeah. also the other guy, Eddie Johnson, just got fired um, by Mayor Lightfoot last week or this week. I actually, this yeah, I think week, it was I on Monday. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's I all mean, that chaos. Go ahead. One thing you alluded to, which I think is really important, is you know these major street gangs on the South Side, like the Blackstone Rangers, the Al Rukins. Al Rukin. Oh, I remember the, that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they disappeared, and what sort of grew in their place were these atomized, um, hyper-local gangs that are really fueled by a lot of social media beefs, mm-hmm. um, and that's driven a lot of the violence, and I think part of the problem of the Chicago Police Department wrapping its head around it is that they don't have any reference point. Um, you know, a lot of these cops came of age during this era when there were these huge dominant street gangs. And then all of a sudden they're looking at a map that not only does it not make sense, it's constantly changing Mm. um, in real time. And yet, you know, add on top of it, the lack of credibility of Chicago Police Department and the African-American community, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I know Lori Lightfoot, her election was kind of uh, uh, seen as one potential remedy to that. Um, She was investigating the Chicago Police Department. prior to being elected. So, you know, I, the thing is, again, there is a silver lining there, though. You know, the, the trend is downward. I mm-hmm. mean, it's still, the numbers are way too high. But as someone who lives in New York, I've seen the gun violence drop um, and even post-stopping uh, um, stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. Right, the stop you know, and frisk stuff, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't bumped up significantly. In some communities, it has. Um but, you know, I just I want to be hopeful for Chicago. The the thing that it strikes me is it's sort of like comparing, uh, you know, it's almost like you need a counterinsurgency type of thing that you see in like Afghanistan or something or where you've got a bunch of small warring factions instead of two major things going at it. Not to belabor the point, but uh, it almost it almost requires sort of a that kind of military strategy to address this. However, I'm also neighborhoods don't like that. Communities don't like those words. And I can understand that the equipment and the attitude and and, in some places, uh, you know, going to St. Louis and and other places like that, it's that militarization that actually sparks even more backlash and Mm -hmm. and the rest of these. So, uh, you know, there's no good way that I know how to do this. They are doing it. As you said, the trend is good. Um, I also, you know, I've seen uh, uh, being interested in this and being from, somewhat of the neighborhood. I've also seen outreach and things like that. I feel like there is some of this is um, that community leaders in the African American, African American, excuse me, African American community and uh, in, in 
some of these neighborhoods, there's a, a sort of peer pressure that we need to do better. And, and like, you know, the, the world is watching and you're, you're, this is Chirac and, uh, you know, young kids coming up and things like that, that they're trying to, you know, they're trying to address this in, you know, you're putting, you don't want to be on the map like this. Of course, if you're a local kid and the block is the only thing that you know, I don't know. It's complicated. I'm certainly, I don't have a, uh, any good uh, remedies for this. I mean, they're. Well, they're I do, I doing. do find the observation of um, the change in control over these micro areas and the use of social media to incite, argue, pick a fight, or finish something is very interesting mm-hmm. um, and very challenging and shows you how technology affects crime and how crime is carried out, especially in, and, yeah. in this way. And, and it's funny. I was sitting down with a defense attorney, um, and it was outside of a gang case, and he just was shaking his head and he said, you know, social media is just killing these guys. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't referring to shootings. He was referring to it was killing them at trial. Because there would literally be Facebook or Instagram posts uh-huh. of threats back and forth. Right. And then, you know, at the end of it, someone would be shot. And, you know, proving intent is a big part of any right. criminal charge. And if you're intense all over Instagram or Facebook, you're not doing yourself any favors. Right. Right. But it's uh, that's another realm of boasting and dominance mm-hmm. and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's uh it's a sign, you know, it's definitely an indication of, it's sort of a sign of the times of what we live in right now. Social media is not just a, a in space. It's not just an abstract thing. It's, it's having real world, con- real world consequences, as we well know. Um, moving to some of our comments this week, we have... What are the people saying, Owen? Terrible transition. <laughs> uh, let's see, we get comments... Yes, on and what our are they social saying? media? Speaking of which, yes, um, we have uh, this particular story. This is about a woman uh, received her food in a drive-through at a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. She allegedly became upset when she was given ketchup instead of jelly. She asked for jelly. Yeah. Jelly. What was uh, the jelly supposed to go on? Well, I you know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm getting sidetracked. McDonald's was my first job. Actually, it was a small uh-huh. thing about that, and I cannot tell you what the heck. Who the, I, I never worked in breakfasts though, so I, I presume. Oh, it was maybe jelly thing. for the breakfast. Right, okay, I guess. But she got ketchup, and so understandably, she was uh, angry, and mm-hmm. she exchanged words with the drive-through person, and she allegedly uh, pulled out uh, a gun. This 20-year-old person. She was uh, arrested. Our uh, Rose B says some people are just too triggered, literally. She needs help with her anger issues before she actually kills someone. This is a good thing. You don't want people popping off with guns. And, and this is in Memphis, by the way, which is uh, you know also having some uh, street violence and that kind of thing, not to the level of Chicago. But um, you don't want to be waving around a gun. In no. She society. should have gone to the Waffle House instead. Waffle House is delicious. <laughs> 24 hours a day. Love their grits. As, as Win D says, not sure if she'll get ketchup or jelly in prison. Both, are, I imagine, are treats in prison. And Ryan uh, Ryan C says, who asks for jelly with a McDonald's meal? There's your problem right there. Anna, you Hello? There. Hello? Did I, I not think, get that? Uh, I think uh, mo- most of our commenters <laughs> will be on that same page there. So, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, nobody likes to wait in line. Nobody likes bad service. But uh, don't, uh, you know, just relax. No, and they're always very nice at McDonald's. And they work really hard. That's what I can't stand is that level of disrespect for someone who works so freaking hard. Yeah. Everyone who works there in any fast food, in any service industry, they're working their butts off. This is this is not said enough. Also, it's just rude to pull out a gun on anybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Johnny, tell us about the. Uh, let's move on and talk about this book that you have written. You've uh, you've you've got two books out. The first one is a uh, American Warlord. This one that's out right now is called The Districts: Stories of American Justice from the Federal Courts. Tell us about that book. Uh, you know how kind of how you got into this uh, into writing it. What you did for research, et cetera. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I started my sort of crime reporting as a victim of crime when I was a young oh, kid. No. I found myself at the wrong end of a, a gun in New Orleans. Um, and it was just a standard issue uh, robbery. A friend and I, and we lost maybe like six bucks and a six pack of natural light in the whole exchange. Just uh, on the, like on the that, street? 
Yeah, it's just on the street. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, New Orleans, it's a tough town. They deal Mm -hmm. with a lot of this stuff. But a few hours later, one of the perpetrators was shot by someone um, he had tried to mug a few blocks away. And I was uh, brought through the crime scene to identify, you know, some of my personal effects, like Mm -hmm. my wallet. And um, eventually the surviving perpetrator, uh, I was brought down to New Orleans for trial. And he pled out basically as soon as I walked in the courtroom because he knew what that would mean. Really? Um, but that, that introduced me to how the criminal justice system operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, some of its inadequacies. And I wrote my first book about a federal case in Miami, which involved, uh, war crimes in Liberia. And then as I was reporting that book, I said, you know, I really like spending time in court. And I think Anna can, can commiserate here, but you know, whether it's covering mob trials or, uh, white collar hedge fund trials, um, or terrorism cases, you know, it's a really fascinating, uh, look into the criminal world. Um, and it's a sort of journey that's led on the one hand by prosecutors, federal prosecutors who are the sort of, um, you know, they're among the most powerful bureaucrats in the country. Um, and then, criminal defense attorneys who, you know, are among the most colorful people you could ever interview. Um, and you know, I decided that I wanted to write a book about the court and I happen to live in probably the most interesting jurisdiction in the country, the Eastern district of New York. Mm. Um, but, uh, two subway stops away is the second most interesting, which is the Southern district of New York has been in the news quite a bit lately, but for Crimes unrelated to uh, our topic today, but yes, go on. The maker of kings. Well, <laughs> well yeah, exactly. And the, I mean, Anna's right. I, you know, the other thing I wanted to write about is just the trajectory of uh, prosecutors in New York, in particular the Southern District, which gave us, you know, obviously gave us Giuliani. But oh my God, what us. is going on with that man? Can someone please explain <laughs> yeah. how he's gone off the rails? How you go from like star prosecutor, fighter, right, cleaning up the streets. To like meeting with odd people in in Ukraine, I don't understand. Although, really, uh, you know, maybe that's not so uh, far not, so, not so different. I think uh, so. I he used to be so high highly stuff. regarded in his yeah. high profile in, in in those high profile cases, and now he just looks like a man who's well, he off was the, the rails. And in, in the Southern District, uh, we might want to explain some of that too. But that's uh, he made his Giuliani particularly made his bones in in uh, mob cases. Yes, which is uh, part of what this book, the districts addresses, correct? Yeah. I mean, I write a bit about that. I also write about how Giuliani essentially cribbed those cases from the Eastern District. Mm. And, mm. I mean, since we were talking about uh, the Irishman earlier, a little bit more Scorsese trivia. If you guys have the chance to watch Goodfellas. Yes, I have. Scene. Yeah. I mean, there's a great scene with Ray Liotta um, and he's sitting down with the prosecutor um, and I always, something struck me about that scene. I'm like, there's something interesting about this prosecutor. He is or was an actual mob prosecutor. And oh. he was the one that Giuliani um, cribbed a lot of his mob cases from. His name's Ed mm. McDonald. Interesting. Um, so if you watch that scene, you'll realize, oh, the reason it seems so real is because this guy's the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, Giuliani, but you know, it's interesting. He set a template. You start by going after the big crime base, which at that time was the mob. Um, then you hit the next big crime base, which was white collar. Mm-hmm. And then he closed out his career on public corruption, which is when you're sort of uh, paving the way for political office. What's the best way to do it? Well, mm-hmm. you go after dirty politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly uh what he did and others have emulated that to a certain degree since then, um, as a, as a way to pave the way, not necessarily to politics. I mean, now the big thing for former prosecutors to do is to jump into media. Oh, um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we, we've met a few. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I um, there is one thing I know we have to wrap soon, but you know, there are two quotes from your book that I find very, very telling. Um, and, and it's the you did this interview with the um, L.A. Times 
and that you said that you love reading about powerful people before they were powerful, and that's what you wanted to do in this book um, because it was such an area of kingmakers, if you will. And I find that fascinating. What is it about the soon-to-be-powerful person that you find so fascinating in the details of how they became that way and before they were and had the power? Well, I mean, one, they'll talk to a lowly reporter like me. I mean, Isn't that, that the that truth, right? Helps. <laughs> Even big shot um, idea. But yeah, but, you know, they're also, they're closer to what it was that made them want to do this work in the first place. Um, and I really, you know, I see in prosecutors a lot of what I see in myself. They're these sort of natural storytellers. They're obviously motivated to tell a very specific story of innocence and guilt. Um, but I met, you know, in particular, I met two federal prosecutors who were sort of at the peak of their game, um, in their doing terrorism cases. And they've since jumped one works directly for William Barr. Now the others at the top of the CIA. And, um, I just caught them at this moment when they were doing just sort of meat and potatoes, terrorism cases. And you see, you see how they play the game. Um, as opposed to how they coach the game. And it's really, I mean, it was really amazing to watch. Um, Do they still take your years. call? I'm curious. Will they still take your call? Or are you still in touch with them? Um, I cannot talk about <laughs> sources. Um, <laughs> I take that I, I as a yes. That. Um, no, I, I, oh, but, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, nudge, nudge. Nudge, nudge. That's good. Well, that says something good about whoever it is we may be talking about, that if they still presumably, supposedly take your calls, that maybe there's still a little bit of them within this new powerful person. The man is a writer as well. And, uh, you know, uh, especially once you get into those upper echelons, I mean, the press is a good thing, whether you're getting it uh, on TV or being written about or whatever else. It's, it's yes and no, you, right? You know, because trust is the biggest part. And, and I think for a reporter, uh, I think the reason people ever do sit down with me, I never strong arm anyone. I don't offer anything. I always say to them, check me out. Look at my work. Sure. And if you want to talk to me, great. I promise you I'll be fair. I'll ask you some tough questions, but I'll be fair. And my work speaks for itself. And if that's not your style, then I guess we got nothing else to talk about. Mm. And I think, I don't know, Johnny, do you feel the same way that your work yeah. speaks for yourself? And if, and that will be the deciding factor on whether someone wants to talk to you. Yeah. And I mean, that's all you can do. And I, you know, there was one prosecutor in particular who, uh, he introduced me to a bunch of other prosecutors and there were some intelligence people uh, in the room. And he said, but don't worry about Johnny. He writes nonfiction, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was it's hilarious. An old I, mean, endorsement. I wasn't looking, yeah, I wasn't looking to break stories off of them. Um, you know, I was working on a book and I think that that gave me um, a little flexibility in terms of access when you're, you know, when you're trying to break stories you know, they have ethical obligations to keep things out of uh, out of the media uh, mm -hmm. a lot of times. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the, the long game versus the, you know, making tomorrow's headlines or the 6 p.m. headlines or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So uh, in this book, you've, you've got the, you're covering organized crime, you're covering drugs, white collar crime, terrorism, public corruption. The name of the book is The District's. Stories of American Justice from the Federal Courts by Johnny Dwyer. That's a NOPF book. Uh, we will have information in our uh, YouTube descriptions and podcast descriptions about how to order that book. Um, Johnny, is there any uh, information as far as if people want to read more of your stuff or just check out your day-to-day -day stuff? How do people get a hold of you? Yeah, so um, you can hit me up at johnnydwyer.net. Um, or I'm on Twitter at uh, Johnny D. Dwyer. Um, I'm working on the next book about offshore uh, finance and money laundering. So if Ooh, you're laundering money right I now, please love reach out. That <laughs> we should have a conversation <laughs> offline with no microphones. I was going to say you're just making friends all over the place with <laughs> no, those, stories like this. Well, sometimes cool. some of your best friends happen to be offshore attorneys. Mm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Well, congratulations on the book, and uh, we look forward to the to the next book, Johnny. Thanks for uh, joining us this week. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We had a good time. So, Anna, 
how about yourself? Where can uh, viewers and listeners find out more about what you're working on, where your socials are, what's uh, what's happening with you? It's pretty consistent across Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Anna with one N, Anna G News. That's me. Easy to find. Anna G with one news. That's one N in the A, mm-hmm. N-A-G-N-E-W-S. Anna G News. Can't go wrong with that. Uh, again, thank you, Anna. Thank you, Johnny. That's our show for this week. Find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and on YouTube. And get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crimes. Don't do crimes.